So we're starting a new chapter today, and this is chapter 27. And we established last chapter that joy is a necessity. It's an absolute must. And if without joy, a person cannot do what they need to do, they don't have the stamina, they don't have the energy, they don't have the wherewithal to do and accomplish what they need to do. So joy is an absolute must, and we need to eradicate any sources of pain or discomfort or sadness, anything that's sucking away at our joy and not allowing us to experience it. So generally speaking, we said that sadness, depression will come from two reasons. Either sadness will be from physical reasons, reasons of the material world. And, and that would be one reason why somebody might feel very sad. The altar Rebbe looked at that and he said, not only is sadness coming from material reasons not a reason to be sad, it's actually a reason to be happy. Now, of course, it's easier said than done. It's like saying, you want to be a doctor? Go to medical school. You say that in a sentence, but really going to medical school is an entire journey. The same thing with joy. We're saying you have to have joy. We're saying how you can get rid of things that zap your energy so you're not allowed to have, not allowing you to have joy. Of course, we're saying this in just a sentence, but it's a journey and it takes work. So when it comes to material sadness, the Altarabba told us, not only is this not a reason to be sad, it's a reason to be happy. If a person, God forbid, experiences suffering or pain stemming from material problems, health, wealth, family, they should know that Hashem has spoken to them from Alma de Iskasia, the concealed world, the world of thought, the hidden world. Hashem has taken them very, very close. And yes, it feels painful because they are not suited, a suitable vessel to receive that kind of light. And yet they should be happy in the fact that Hashem has brought them so close. So when it comes to material reasons for sadness, the Altar established, that's not a reason to be sad. Actually, to the contrary, that's a reason to be happy. Okay? And then we looked at spiritual reasons to be sad. Sins. Looking at sins, actually, that's a very good reason to be sad. A sin would be a reason to cry and cry and cry. But, practically speaking, you can't. So while a sin, setting up a partition between a person and Hashem, would be a reason to be sad, practically speaking, you can't be sad. Even if your sadness is coming from spiritual reasons, when you're sad, you are not giving it your all. You're way down and you do not have the stamina to fight. You do not have the energy to be totally present. So even sadness for a genuine reason, a sadness for sin, for the most part, you can't even be sad about that. On occasion... A person can be sad about sins when they are of a calm mind and they prepared by proper meditation, thinking about Hashem's greatness and the distance they created by sinning. Today we're going to look at a different kind of spiritual sadness. And this spiritual sadness doesn't come from sins. It comes from something else. And this is something that's going to happen to a person, bound to happen to a person who's a true seeker, a person who really works on themselves. This is bound to happen to a person who really does inner work and takes his spiritual service seriously. So what's going on? The person is working, maybe even many years. And all of a sudden they realize that after all these years of inner work, after all these years of serving Hashem, they're essentially the same person they always were. Nothing of their inner psyche has changed. They still have the same struggles. 
They think like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to fulfill my mission in life. Here I am struggling with the same moral problems I was always struggling with. I was hoping to transform. I was hoping not to have these problems anymore. You know the story that they attribute to the Rambam, that the Rambam had a disagreement with the philosophers in the king's court. So the philosophers said, they were of the opinion, that if you take an animal and train it, it will reach the same level of sophistication behavior-wise as a human being. And the Rambam said, no, you can't. So they took a cat and they trained the cat to be a waiter. And the cat was able to walk on its hind legs and carry food and serve and, I don't know, maybe dress it in a bow tie or something. And they came to show the king that, yes, you can give the cat the same level of behavioral sophistication as you can give a human being. And so as the cat was serving, the Rambam opened up a little box. And out of that box darted a mouse. And all of a sudden, the sophisticated cat went down on its all fours and started chasing after the mouse. The cat is the cat. It hasn't changed. So sometimes we feel that same way. I've been working on myself all this time. Why am I suddenly feeling flared up with anger inside my heart? Why do I suddenly have this uncharitable thought in my mind? I thought I worked on myself. This is very depressing and this is sad. And this is a sadness that's coming from a material, a spiritual worry. And yet the Alter Rebbe tells us that this kind of sadness is not appropriate. It's not genuine sadness. Not only is it a re- not a reason to be sad, it's actually a reason to be happy. Another reason to be happy. So we're going to look at it inside. In the previous chapters, in the previous chapter, the Alter Rebbe stated that sadness hinders one's service of God in general and his battle with the Yetzir Hara in particular. He therefore discussed means of overcoming sadness by material concerns and by anxiety over one's sins. In this chapter and the next, he will discuss another type of melancholy that, co- that is caused by concern over one's sinful thoughts and desires. This category itself may be further subdivided into two. One, where these thoughts occur when he is occupied with his material fears, and that's what we're going to discuss in this chapter. And two, where these thoughts disturb his service of God in Torah study, prayer, and the like, and that's what we're going to discuss next chapter. In this chapter, the Alter Rebbe discusses the first situation. He states that not only are these thoughts no cause for sadness, but on the, on the contrary, they ought to give rise to joy. Chapter 27. If, however, his sadness does not stem from anxiety over sins that he has committed. And before we finish the sentence, we're going to explore the subject of sinful thoughts. And you might look at me and say, what are you talking about sinful thoughts? You're going to tell me what I am allowed to think and what I am not allowed to think. And actually, yes, that's the case. We learned that the soul has three garments. Three garments means three modes of expression. The outermost garment is action. Action is the way a person expresses themselves to people around them and upon the world around them, upon their environment. So action is one garment. Then there is a garment that's more intimate than that, and that's the garment of a speech. That's a person expressing himself to people outside of them. Then there's another garment, and a lot of people don't realize that this is a mode of expression, and that is thought. Thought is a garment, and that is the way the soul expresses itself to its conscious self. So so thought is a garment, and we are meant to maintain control over all three. We're meant to control our behavior, our actions. We're meant to control our words, our speech. 
we're meant to control our thoughts. In fact, and this might be a very shocking statement, the Talmud says like this, Hirhure avera kashu me avera. Thoughts of sin are worse than actual sin. You're going to be shocked. Like, what in the world? Isn't an actual sin worse? So there's different ways to understand this. The Rambam in Moranavuchim, the guide for the perplexed, explains that thought is more delicate. Thought is more intimate. And this is what Hasidus explains. That because thought is our innermost garment, it's more closely, closely, it's the most closely intimate with our psyche. Sinful thoughts will cause the most inner damage. Let's look at somebody who is kind of just not thinking and they blurt gossip out from their mouth. Okay? That's absolutely the wrong thing. It's terrible and they should never have done it. And this causes the most damage to the world around them. It causes damage to the person who they said it to because now they're passing the corruption to somebody else. It causes damage to the person they're speaking about. And in general, it brings corruption to the world. So absolutely a person should not gossip. But let's say they chose not to say the gossip and that's the right choice. But instead, they're keeping the thoughts in their mind. They're saying, I'm not going to say this, but oh my goodness. And there they are brewing and brewing this gossip in their mind, this bad, uncharitable thoughts, this judgmental, mean thoughts about somebody else. At this point, their inner psyche is getting corrupt. The thoughts affect them and it hurts their inner psyche. So while on one hand, absolutely bringing the action to the world outside of them is so damaging. But in terms of the person themselves, what's the most damaging are the thoughts. Another thing is the Or HaChayim explains that when a person thinks sinful thoughts, they don't think they did anything wrong. They think, what's a thought already? And so they never do Teshiva for it. And in that way, it's worse. It's more damaging because they don't realize it's a sin. And they never do Teshuvah for a sinful thought. So there's three ways to handle sinful thoughts. One is, Catherine, did you have a question? Okay. Yeah, my question is, um, like, I was in a scenario where uh, my friend is a hairstylist. And her uh, client is also my client. I found out she has corona. And um, then she told me that she's going to go get her hair done there. Should I have told her, well, be careful, she has corona? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, you should have told her that because that's protecting her health. This is what we call lito elas for a purpose. Gossip, what we're talking about here is not purposeful. There's there's nothing good coming out of it. This is not productive. This is just saying bad things about a person for no reason. Sometimes you have to pass on that kind of information in order to protect other people. So that is a situation where that's information to be shared so that you protect your friend's health. Got it. Thank you. So now there's three ways of dealing with sinful thoughts. One is the Russia, the wicked guy. Sinful thoughts come to him and he willingly entertains those thoughts. The other extreme is the tzaddik. This is the person who has driven out his evil. He doesn't have sinful thoughts occurring to him. He doesn't have sinful thoughts to drive out of his mind. He never ever entertains sinful thoughts. Maybe at one point early in his journey in serving Hashem, 
He had sinful thoughts, but he battled them successfully, and now he doesn't have evil anymore. He has totally eradicated evil from his inner psyche, and he doesn't struggle with sinful thoughts. Then there's the Benoni, and that's the hero of the Tanya. He is a person who has sinful thoughts occur to him. But the moment that he realizes the thought that he is entertaining is a thought he shouldn't have, he immediately repels the thought from his mind. We don't get to choose which thoughts we get, but we do get to choose which thoughts we entertain. There is a story of the Magad of Mezrich, that's the teacher of the Alter Rebbe, and one of his students complained to him that he has thoughts that he shouldn't have. And so the Alter Rebbe said, to help you with this, I want you to visit my student, Reb Zev Wolf of Zhitomer. So he goes, he visits Reb Zev, he comes to his house, he sees Reb Zev is up, clearly because he's somehow mysteriously sweeping in the middle of the night. And he's knocking on his door, and Reb Zev doesn't answer. And this goes on for a long time. It's the middle of the night. And finally, at one point, Reb Zev lets him into his house. He stays with Reb Zev for a few days. And finally, he says to him, Look, I came here because I was hoping to learn how to handle thoughts that I shouldn't have. And I haven't learned anything. And he said, You haven't learned anything, but I already answered you the first night that you came. A man is the master over his own home. And he gets to choose who to let enter his home. And furthermore, a man is required to sweep his home. So that's how you need to handle your thoughts. You don't get to choose which thoughts knock on your mind. Only a tzaddik who eradicated his evil can do away with thoughts that he doesn't want to have. But you do get to choose which thoughts you give hospitality to, which thoughts you allow to enter into your mind. And every once in a while, you need to do a sweeping and make sure that there's no evil thoughts lurking around within your mind. And that was the lesson that Reb Zev Wolf shared with the student of the Magid. So the, the Benoni doesn't get to choose which thoughts knock on his mind. That's not his choice. But he does get to choose which thoughts enter his mind. As soon as a person willingly entertains a thought that they shouldn't have, that's when they're already guilty of sin. When he has a thought that came from his subconscious... He didn't get to choose. But as soon as he becomes conscious of it, he says, oh no, this is a thought I'm not supposed to have, and allows it to linger, at that point, he is being sinful. I know this sounds very hardcore, so if anybody has questions about it, please. It's hard to think in this terms, but you have to understand, we all have to understand, that this is the easiest and truest way to live, and it's utter authenticity. We have to be honest and realize that certain thoughts we're not supposed to have and allowing those thoughts to enter our mind and to stay there doesn't help anybody to say well you know what it's just a thought so I'm going to keep it because it's comfortable for me it's not comfortable for us in the long run it causes inner corruption and it distracts us from doing what we need to do so I know you hi it's Maytal Maytal okay I know you've covered this before but for those who haven't heard it what is the narrative that you're supposed to what is one way you can speak to your thoughts um, and let them go away. Okay, that's a very good question. I was planning to address it later, but I'm going to address it now. You can't just say, I don't want to think this thought anymore. It's like saying, don't think about pink elephants. As soon as you keep saying, don't think about pink elephants, guess what you're thinking about? Pink elephants. The way to deal with a negative thought that you should not be having is by replacing the thought with another thought. 
You can only think one thing at a time, right? So if you catch yourself thinking a thought you shouldn't think, let's say you're thinking uncharitable thoughts about another person, you replace the thought immediately. First of all, you can think the opposite. You can think, wow, you know what? I noticed they have some really good character traits, very admirable. Or you can think, you know what? I want to do something nice for them today. That's one thing. But it doesn't even have to be the opposite thought. You can choose to think just a totally different thought. And this is actually a way to deal with other things like worry and sadness in general. There's a great book by the psychologist Dr. Sarah Hannah Radcliffe. It's called The Fear Fix. She wrote this book because in today's day and age, the amount of anxiety and panic and worry that is affecting small children has become huge. And one of the things she says is that worry can only continue as long as you give it attention. As soon as you divert your attention from the worry, the worry shrinks. So she speaks about a teenager who's worried that her best friend might drop her. And then all of a sudden UPS is here and her clothes that she was waiting for came and she's like, bye bye, gotta go now. She's thinking about something else. And in general, that's how it is. Any thought that we should not be having, the way to get rid of it, the way to thrust it out of our mind is not by thinking this is a thought I shouldn't have. No, that's further giving attention to the thought. The way to get rid of the thought is by replacing that thought with another thought. So now let's look inside. His sadness does, if his sadness does not save him from anxiety over sins that he has committed, Ella may hear horim ra'im v'tayves rais shenifleis v'machshavtai. But from the fact that sinful thoughts and desires enter his mind, then, hine im neifleis leis shelebashas avayda, Ella be'es, you know what, let me go back for a second, I'm sorry. Okay, so we said he's, he's sad because, not because he did any sin, but he's sad because he has these desires that he wished he didn't have. Now, why is he sad about that? Think about the natural maturation process, the process of maturing. So we learned in chapter six that the emotions are commensurate with the mind. What your mind thinks of as pleasurable, good, and desirable, that's what your heart is gonna desire. For this reason, a young child wishes for things that are petty and small because that's what his mind in his immature state considers significant and important. As a person grows older, they no longer dream of baby food or throwing Legos at their brother or jumping off of the bunk bed, not because now I'm an adult, so although I strongly desire to jump off the bunk bed and throw Legos at my brother, I can't do it anymore, so I have self-control. No, no. Now that you're an adult, your mind has matured, and those things that you found pleasurable as a child, you no longer find pleasurable as an adult because your mind has developed. So taking this same framework over to spiritual maturation, a person who's been working on themselves all these years, all of a sudden they come to realize that those same desires that I had early in my process of spiritual maturity, I'm still having now. I haven't matured at all. I'm still a tantruming two-year-old inside. All these years that I thought I grew up, I thought I've matured, I've developed, I've reached a certain spiritual level. I'm still struggling with the same, same things I was struggling with very early on. And that is a cause for depression. A person starts to feel very sad about it. So now, let's look at how to deal with these thoughts. If these thoughts occur to him, not during his service of God, but while he is occupied with his own affairs with, and with mundane matters and the like, He should, however, be happy with his lot, for although these sinful thoughts 
enter his mind, he averts his attention from them. So don't be sad, be happy. Why? clear that here we are speaking about one who does not willfully dwell on sinful thoughts for if he does so he is a sinner and the previous chapter already dealt with sadness arriving rising from sins by averting his mind from sinful thoughts he fulfills the injunction you shall not follow after your heart and after your eyes by which you go astray so we have sheish Mitzvahs temidiais, that means six constant mitzvot. And these are enumerated by the, the Sefer HaChinuch. And they are, a person is supposed to believe in one God. He is not supposed to believe in any other God. He should understand and know that God is one. He should love Hashem. He should fear Hashem. And finally, You shall not wander after your eyes and after your hearts, after which you go astray. This is a constant mitzvah. A constant mitzvah is not wandering after our hearts and after our minds. The Sefer HaChinuch explains that the thoughts are like the father and the action is like the child. There's no child if there's no father. If a person aborts the thought before it comes full blown, it doesn't give rise to the action. Sinful acts come because they were preceded by a sinful thought. And not just that, he gives the advice. The Sefer actually written by an unknown author in Spain in the 13th century. It was written for his son, enumerating the 613 mitzvahs. And he explains on this mitzvah that a person should not let his eyes and his heart wander after material things because these things in the end bring bizayin vaketzef, he quotes from uses the language from Megillus Esther, disgraced and contempt. And in general, this is a good thing to know, you know, as a parent, to allow your child to just continuously do window shopping on Amazon and Zara's and all the sites out there. The more you see, the more you want. That's not how it is. You know, you need something, you go shopping. To go and allow your, your eyes and therefore your heart to go astray is going against the way of the Torah. That's not the way of the Torah. The way of the Torah is keep guard over your eyes and over your heart. So a person who is getting these thoughts popping up into his mind, he doesn't want them. He didn't, he didn't allow, he didn't consciously bring this thought into his mind. As soon as the thought pops into his mind, he does the right thing. He averts his attention completely. Why should he be sad about that? He should be happy. Now he has the chance to fulfill the biblical injunction of do not wander after your eyes and after your hearts. Now you can say one second. That's good. But what about a tzaddik? He also doesn't wander after his eyes and after his hearts. Why does that give me any advantage over somebody who does not have these struggles? So this is what the altar is going to explain. Only when sinful thoughts enter one's mind can he fulfill this command. For the intention of the verse is not that one be at a level where such thoughts would not occur to him. This is the level of tzaddikim, who have eradicated all evil from their hearts. Surely then, this verse is not addressed to tzaddikim. The verse refers rather to one who does have such thoughts, and he is commanded to banish them. As the Alter Rebbe continues, The ein hakasav medaber b'tzaddikim l'kar amzaynim chas v'shalom the above verse does not, surely does not speak of tzaddikim, referring to them, God forbid, as going astray. The end of the verse, it says, you shall not wander after your eyes and after your hearts. The end of the verse is after which you go astray. The term zainim 
going astray refers to specifically two sins, immorality and idol worship. Tzaddikim don't have thoughts of immorality and idol worship. The, the Torah is not calling Tzaddikim Zainim, strayers. So who is the Torah speaking about? Ela babeninim. But of Benonim, like himself, in whose mind there do, do enter erotic thoughts, whether, whether of an innocent nature or otherwise. Okay, so who is the Torah speaking to when the Torah says, don't stray after your eyes and after your hearts? Speaking specifically to Benonim, who do entertain erotic thoughts, and the Altarabah says, whether of an innocent nature. Innocent nature means they're thinking about the union of male and female. That means it could be thoughts involving one's own spouse, but not in the right time. Timing is everything. The time to think about one's spouse and the union of male and female is when the spouses are together. Then is the time to be present and totally there for each other. However, when that is not Okay, I see a question over here and I'll get to that. When a person is not engaged in the act, it's not the time for it, they should not be entertaining these thoughts. The Torah says like this, And in the Talmud, Pinchas ben Yair says, a person should not entertain such thoughts during the day so that he shall not become polluted at night. So what does it mean, v'nishmarta mikol davara? It means you should guard yourself from everything evil. And Rabbi Pinchas ben Yara explains, a person should not have erotic thoughts during the day, so he shall not experience a nocturnal emission. Now this is clearly for a man, but it also applies to a woman. And it doesn't just apply to a woman as far as contemplating the union between male and female. It applies as far as contemplating any material pe- pleasure so far as it is divorced from your divine mission. Okay, so let's take that in for a minute. What does this mean? In a Hasidic discourse, the Alter Rebbe says that having some type of material pleasure outside of your relationship is a form, a subtle form of adultery. Now, this may sound very crazy and wild, but think of a couple who is deeply devoted to each other. And all of a sudden, one of them says, you know what? They would like to experience a little bit of pleasure outside of the relationship, and we're not talking about infidelity. They want to have a sushi or ice cream outside of the relationship. That is a form of betrayal. Nobody said you can't have sushi or ice cream. But you can't have sushi or ice cream and dreaming that you're single. As soon as a person is saying, you know what, I'm having a little bit of pleasure outside of the relationship, that's a form of adultery. That's a form of disloyalty. Of course, have the things you need. Take care of yourself. But it's always in the context of the relationship. That's with a human relationship. But let's take about the ultimate relationship, our relationship with Hashem. We're here on a divine mission. Hashem has made an investment in putting a divine soul down here with us. Hashem has wants a relationship down here with us. And everything that we do is to further our divine mission. So I see some questions on the chat and I'm going to address that. Okay, my chat is not popping up for me. Oh, here we go. Uh, is going after your eyes the same or different as going after your mind? Well, your eyes bring the awareness to your mind. But essentially... You have the mind's eye 
And anything that you allow to pop into your mind and entertain it is going after your eyes, your intellectual eyes as well. Then we have a question here. How do you justify purposely wanting alone time? And that's a very important question. So definitely a person needs to have alone time. If they are not getting alone time, then they are irritable, they're sad, they, they're drained, they're depleted, they can't be their best self for their family. So the question is, why are you having alone time? When you're having alone time, my sister-in-law has a grandmother that when she would feel overwhelmed with her children, she would go to her room and close the door. And the kids would say, what are you doing? And she would say, I'm making a mother for you. She would go to her room and take alone time. She's saying, I'm making a mother for you. Why was she having an alone time? We, this is, you know, this is very important. We should address this almost as a subject on its own. And that is the self-care movement. The self-care mo- movement, and forgive me for saying this because this is going to be radical, is idol worship. When people are all about self-care, first of all, for the most part, they're miserable. They're always like, okay, well, are we having fun yet? What are you talking about? You forget what this is about. What's self-care? There's something, of course, we're supposed to have self-care, but why? The Midrash tells us about Hillel Hazakain, Hillel the elder. He was walking with his students, and suddenly he started to walk in a different direction. And they said, Rabbi, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to do a mitzvah. And they said, which mitzvah are you doing? And I said, I'm going to the bathhouse. I'm going to take a bath. And they said, really? Is that a mitzvah? Taking a bath is a mitzvah? And he said, listen, watch how they take care of the icons, the statues of the king. There's special attendants that wash them and clean them and make them look respectable. They're doing something important. I, who am created B'Tselem in the Elohim, in the image of God, should I not all the more so take care of the image? I am in the image of God. So of course there's supposed to be self-care. But why the self-care? The Rambam writes that taking care of the body properly is serving Hashem. Because in order to have a healthy soul, you have to have a healthy spirit. The Maggid of Mezrich, that's the teacher of the Alter Rebbe, he had a son that was very pious. They used to call him the Malach, the angel. He didn't even care for material pleasure so much that his father was afraid he was going to neglect taking care of himself. And before he passed away, while he was on his deathbed, he said, My son, Avraham, be careful to take care of yourself because a small hole in the body is a great hole in the soul. We need to take care of ourselves so that our, our body is a proper vessel to house the soul. If a person is not taking proper care of themselves, they're irritable, they're sick, they're weakly, they can't be on their best behavior. So absolutely a person should have self-care. They need to eat properly, they need to exercise properly, they need to get their alone time. If it means they need to have an ice cream or a manicure, everybody knows what they need in order to feel like a person. But the reason why we're feeling like a person, that's not an end in itself. As soon as it becomes an end in itself, that's idol worship. This is something that Maimonides speaks about in Shemayin Prakim, his introduction to Perkeyaves. In chapter 5, he speaks about directing everything towards one purpose. And he speaks about the importance of taking care of your health. But then he says, the person who takes care of their health as an end in itself is defeating the purpose. That's not a well-developed person. The reason why we take care of our health is so that our body can be a proper medium to house our soul. 
So again, self-care is very important so far as it serves the divine. So far as we're taking care of ourselves to serve the divine, and ironically speaking, people who take care of themselves to serve the divine are the happiest. People who seek self-care as an end in itself are usually miserable because you can't pursue happiness like Viktor Frankl said. Happiness cannot be pursued. Happiness must ensue. There's an expression in Hasidic philosophy called bittel, and that's translated a lot as self-nullification. People hear that and they're like, self-nullification, that's horrible. We need to have a high self-esteem. So I heard a really great line from Rabbi Manus Friedman. He said like this, Bittel doesn't mean thinking less of yourself. It means thinking of yourself less. If a person is thinking about themselves all the time, they are going to be miserable. That's just the way it is. You don't think of yourself as much, that's a sign of good health. So absolutely, we should be taking care of ourselves. but there's a purpose in mind. And as soon as that self-care is divorced from the purpose, then this is a subtle form of adultery in our relationship with Hashem. Okay. And when he averts his mind from them, from these thoughts he shouldn't have, he fulfills this injunction. Now you can ask the question, I understand. When a person was visited by a thought they shouldn't have, their animal soul presented them with a thought that they realized they shouldn't have. Immediately, they deterred the thought. They pushed it away. They said, no, thank you. I don't want to have this thought. When they did that, what did they do? They avoided becoming more distant from Hashem. But why is that a reason to be happy? How is this like a mitzvah? A mitzvah is experiencing greater closeness. Here you just avoided becoming more distant. Why is this a reason to become happy? And again, a tzaddik doesn't have this problem, so he also avoids this distance. So the Alter Rebbe now explains. Razal, yashav avar avera, our sages have said, when one passively abstains from sin, he is rewarded as though he actively performed a mitzvah. Okay, so if a person doesn't sin, it's like he did a mitzvah. Okay, here's a sin that I bet none of us did. This is prohibition number 87, the Rambam enumerates in his Sefer HaMitzvahs. The book of mitzvahs. Prohibition number 87 is, do not separate the Choshen, the Kohen Gadol's breastplate from the ephod, from his apron. So none of us did that. Are we getting a mitzvah because we didn't separate the breastplate from the apron, the ephod from the choshen, the choshen from the ephod? No, we're not. Why? Because first of all, we don't have the temptation. And second of all, we don't have the opportunity. It is specifically somebody who has the opportunity, the opportunity of a sin presented itself and they did not do the sin. They are the one who is rewarded as though they did a mitzvah. Consequently, he should rejoice in his compliance with the injunction just as he does when performing an actual positive precept. Thus, not only should occurrence of these thoughts not grieve him, but it ought to bring him joy, for only thereby is he able to fulfill this commandment. Okay, so... To illustrate this thought, there is a story of the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, 
that one of his students complained to him, and he said, Rebbe, what should I do? I have no desire to study Torah. And the Tzemach Tzedek looked at him and said, Well, what should I do? That I do indeed desire to study Torah. Here, in not desiring to study Torah and going against his animal soul, he had an amazing opportunity to serve Hashem. There's a story of a man who was becoming a Baal Teshuvah. His name was Daniel. He lived in Belgium. And he met Rabbi Slavatitsky. That's the Shliach in Belgium. He was a very deep and spiritual person. And he took to Torah like water. He was making steps and strides. He was so deep and intelligent, sensitive. But there was something bothering him. And Rabbi Slavatitsky realized. And finally, at one point, he told Rabbi Slavatitsky, Look, I have a non-Jewish girlfriend. She lives in Italy. And I am definitely planning on marrying her. I don't know what to do. I want to be observant, and yet I want to marry the woman. And so Rabbi Slavatitsky said, look, you're going to have to come with me. We're traveling to the Rebbe. So they go to, to Brooklyn. They fly to Brooklyn. They wait online for dollars on a Sunday. And he's practicing in his mind what he's going to say to the Rebbe when he gets by. But of course, the second he sees the Rebbe, he just, his mind goes blank. Just the magnitude of the Rebbe's person. The Rebbe hands him a dollar. He takes the under end of the dollar, but the Rebbe doesn't let go. So he looks at the Rebbe's face, and the Rebbe is looking at him with kindness and love and warmth, and all of a sudden he calms down and he regains his composure. And he said, Rebbe, I'm becoming observant, but I have a non-Jewish girlfriend that I intend to marry. And the Rebbe looks at him. The Rebbe's face is serious, but he said he could detect a smile. And the Rebbe said, I envy you. He's thinking, you envy me, you great tzaddik, envy me. And the Rebbe says that Hashem is giving you a special challenge. And that means he gives you the strength to overcome it. I don't have that test. It is you that Hashem gave that test. And for that, I envy you. And this is something different about the work of the Benoni and the work of a tzaddik. A tzaddik at one point, they do away with their inner evil. They don't have these kind of tests. This is somebody who has this inner darkness. They have a dark side. They have struggles. This is something that the tzaddik actually should envy, should be envious of, because they get to fulfill this injunction. You shall not wander after your eyes and after your hearts. So let's sum up what we said until now. And that is that if a person has a different kind of spiritual sadness, not a sadness from actual sins, but sadness from the occurrence of sinful thoughts and desires, not only is this not a reason to be sad, it's actually a reason to be happy. Because when they are visited by these kind of thoughts, they have the opportunity to repel these thoughts, to divert their attention, to thrust these thoughts out of their mind. And in doing so, they get to fulfill an injunction. And a person who doesn't sin when the opportunity presents itself, it's like they did a mitzvah. They reach a new level of closeness to Hashem. Now we're going to move to the next thought. And the next thought's going to explore... Look, you can think that, practically speaking, you shouldn't be sad about the occurrence. I'm sorry. Practically speaking, although you shouldn't be sad about the occurrence of negative thoughts or desires, the sadness, because of it, even though we shouldn't have it, stems from a noble place. It's virtuous. And the Altar is going to say, actually, just the sadness, being sad about it, thinking that you should be sad about it, is not coming from a good place. It's coming from the Yetzirah. On the contrary, such sadness is due to conceit. 
For he does not know his place, and that is why he is distressed, because he has not attained the level of a tzaddik. So why is the person sad? The person is sad because of conceit, because they don't know their place. The Mishnah and Avais lists 48 things by which a Torah, the Torah is acquired, and one of them is Hamakir Makaimai, one who knows his place. You have to know your place. So the person who's becoming sad because he's visited by evil thoughts is sad because he's not a tzaddik. Let's look at our own experience, the average person, right? Maybe a lot of people want to be the president. But a person, an average person, who suddenly cries because he's not the president, he is pompous. He's delusional. He doesn't know his place. Why are you crying because you're not the president? If you're crying because you're not the president, it means that you attribute, attribute self-importance to yourself unduly. It means that you don't know your place. It's one thing to wish to be the president. It's another thing to be sad or distressed because you're not the president. By the same token, somebody who is a great scientist, they might wish to become an expert in their field. That's achievable. And they might even be frustrated until they reach their goal. That's reasonable. But to cry because he's not as wise as Solomon, the wisest of all men, that's conceitful. That's conceited. That's arrogance. Why are you crying because you're not as wise as Solomon? That means that you think that's within your league. That means that you think that you should be as wise as Solomon. By the same token, somebody who runs 10 miles every day and then wants to up their mileage to 12 miles, that's doable. But somebody who never shakes a leg and then wants to wear the ma- win the marathon and cries because they don't win the marathon, that's ridiculous. Why are you sad or distressed because you didn't win the marathon? You have to know your place. So a person who is sad because they have sinful thoughts or desires coming to their mind doesn't know their place. It means that they attribute more greatness to themselves thinking that they could be a tzaddik. We have to understand that a tzaddik is a different kind of nature. Most people are born with a nature where they are never going to be able to eradicate the evil within them. Everybody has to try, but at a certain point, most people realize that this is not their place. They're not going to end up being a tzaddik. Some people will try and they will succeed. They will do away with their evil. They will become a tzaddik. Some people are trying and trying and they don't succeed as much as they try to eradicate the evil. They still have evil lurking within their inner psyche. If a person is crying, is distressed, is anguished because they have sinful thoughts, it means they don't know their place. The Talmud tells us different advice from different stages on how to deal with Torah study. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said, If a person plows when it's plowing time, and plants when it's planting time, and harvests when it's time for harvest, Torah, what's going to be with the Torah? No, that's not how you do it. You just sit and learn, and other people are going to end up doing your work for you. Okay. Rabbi Yishmael had different advice. He said, sometime you dedicate to Torah study, sometime you dedicate to doing what you need to do, such as plowing and planting and harvesting, and this way you're going to have what you need and you'll be able to study Torah. And the Talmud tells us that people tried to do like Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, to just study Torah and not work, and it didn't work out for them. While others did what Rabbi Yishmael advised, spend some time studying Torah and some time earning a living, and it worked out well for them. And the Baal Shem Tev explains that the reason why it doesn't work out for other people, but it worked out for Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, was because of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's level. 
If you're not on the level of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, it's not going to work out for you. You have to know your place. And if you try to be Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the Baal Shem Tov says, what's the, the sad part of this is not only that you're not going to be Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, but you're also not going to be yourself. How sad it is that you're not going to be yourself. So you have to know your place. And the person who is crying because they're getting sinful thoughts doesn't know their place. This is due to arrogance and conceit. They think that they should be at the level of a tzaddik. Of course, we should all wish to be the level of a tzaddik. But wishing to be the level of a tzaddik is not the same thing as getting depressed that we're not on the level of a tzaddik. Our sages tell us that a person should ask themselves, when will my deeds reach the, de- reach the deeds of my forefathers? Of course, this should be a wish and an aspiration. But if we're getting down because of it, if we're getting depressed because of it, this is already a sign of conceit. To whom a tzaddik, such foolish thoughts surely do not occur. For if he were to recognize his station, that he is very far from the rank of a tzaddik, and would that he be a benoni and not a rasha for even a single moment throughout his life, meaning this is what he should be striving for at present, rather than vainly desiring to be a tzaddik. So stop crying that you're not a tzaddik. That's not what it's about. Realize your place and recognize, would that you be a benoni your entire life? So what is a man's wish for? A man's wish for is would that he be a benoni. What's a benoni? A benoni is somebody who reached a place where, although they have sinful thoughts, they never even think of committing a sin. This is already a station. This is a level. A benoni is somebody who doesn't, never sins in action, never sins in words, and never even sins in thought. As soon as they realize that they have a stray thought or desire, they repel the thought from their mind. And what they never ever think about is actually committing a sin. One of my sisters is highly allergic to dairy. And when she was little, she couldn't even touch dairy. But now as an adult, she's able to touch and smell dairy. And she even serves it to her kids. And she was telling me something really interesting about her experience. She said that she finds dairy, the smell of dairy, to be tantalizing and pleasurable. But she would never, ever think of eating dairy. It's dangerous for her. Imagine an anaphylactic person thinking of eating dairy. It doesn't make any sense. I know it smells really good. But they would never think of eating it because they might be dead, God forbid. So that's how a Benoni is. Sure, he finds the same things as other people to be pleasurable, but he never would even think of committing the sin because to him, this is lethal. This is dangerous. This will separate him from Hashem. What sets him apart from other people is not his desires. He may have the same desires as everybody else. What sets him apart from other people is he, first of all, averts the thought as soon as he realizes he has the attention on it. And second of all, he doesn't even think of doing it. It's out of the question. Of course not. It's like death. A person who is healthy doesn't desire things that will kill them, God forbid. And so while they might find it tantalizing, they will never think to actually do it. So being a Benoni in a certain sense is like running up the down escalator. It's hard. To stay at the level of a Benini, you have to keep struggling. So even if you already are a Benini, you have to remember, this is what you should be striving for, to continue to be a Benini, because it's hard work. You have to stay on top of your game. You can't afford to fail. 
So on the one hand, it could be depressing, but there's something special in the work of the Benoni. You know the analogy of the Chinese woman who every single morning fills up two buckets and puts them on the yoke and carries them back from the well. One of the buckets is strong and sturdy and complete, and that bucket remains full. But the other bucket, the bucket on the left, is cracked. And every single day, by the time she gets home, it's only half full. Now, of course, buckets don't speak, but in this story it does. And the left bucket feels inferior. And it turns to the woman one morning and says, I'm so sorry that I'm broken. I'm so sorry that I'm always half full by the time you get home. I feel so bad about it. And the woman looks at the bucket and says, oh, don't be sad about it. Didn't you notice that every day on the path that we walk home, one side of the path is blossoming with flowers? I planted those flowers, and you water those flowers every single day when we walk home. So it's a different type of service, the service of being broken, the service of having sinful thoughts or desires. But there's something amazing that happens every time we resist the opportunity and decide to keep a divine conscious and, and keep in line with our divine mission. So let's sum up what we said until now. And we said that a person is not supposed to be sad because of the occurrence of sinful thoughts or desires. And the sadness because of sinful thoughts or desires is not noble or virtuous. It's actually coming from a bad place. It's coming from conceit. It's because a person doesn't recognize his place. If he were to recognize his place, he would realize that doing away with evil thoughts altogether means totally having transformed his inner psyche. Most people can't do that. That's not his province. It's the province of a tzaddik. If he's sad about it, it means that he's conceited. He doesn't know his place. And therefore, a person should realize what he strives for is not to be a tzaddik. What he strives for is to be a benoni, to maintain perfect control over his actions, over his speech, and even over his thoughts. So that's where we got up until today. I'm going to open now for questions and discussion. I have a question. Okay, Joni. Okay, did you, did you address what do you do with the sadness if you're not allowed to have the sadness? Wait, you said you're not allowed to have the sadness if you're a benoni. Oh, wait, right? You said we're not allowed to have the sadness because you're getting the occurrence of sinful thoughts. And you said, did we address how okay. to deal with the sadness? How to deal with that sadness. Yes. We, uh, we, yeah. I, okay. Wait, well, let, me, let me tell you. Let me tell you. I, want, I, should have, I should have wrapped up from the beginning of the chapter. Let's wrap up from the beginning of the chapter. It's going to take me less than a minute. <laughs> we said there's another kind of sadness stemming from spiritual reasons, and that's sadness from the occurrence of evil thoughts and desires. Not only is this not a reason to be sad, it's actually a reason to be happy. Because if a person has the opportunity to resist evil thoughts and desires, they have the opportunity to fulfill the biblical injunction, you, not, you shall not stray after your heart and after your eyes. And by averting his attention from these sinful thoughts, he has the opportunity that even a tzaddik doesn't have. He has the opportunity of fulfilling this biblical injunction of not sinning when the opportunity presented himself, itself. And for this, he should be happy. And in fact, if he feels like he should be sad about it, he's, it's coming from conceit. It means that he doesn't recognize his place. It means that he thinks he should be a tzaddik. He has to recognize his place and think, you know what? Halavai, you should be a benoni. Would that you be a benoni? In fact, one of the students of the Alter Rebbe, before he was a chassid, he was actually an opponent of the chassidic movement. And he said that when, before he came to know and understand the Alter Rebbe's teachings, he thought of himself as a tzaddik. He thought he was a perfectly righteous person. 
And once he became to understand these teachings, he would say, Halavaya Benini. Would that I would have been a Benini. Everybody who knew him considered him a tzaddik. He was an extremely pious man. He wrote deep Hasidic works. But he said of himself, Halavai, I should be a Benini. Would that I be a Benini. So does that answer the question that, yes, the way they deal with this sadness is realize you should be happy. Be happy because you have the opportunity to fulfill the mitzvah of not straying after your hearts and after your eyes. I'm looking around. Any other questions? <laughs>